Cash versus debt, funding the growth of a home service business. Now, some of you guys are probably familiar with Dave Ramsey and his general mantra that is, debt is bad, debt is bad, debt is bad, do not do it, right? And when he's saying that, he is talking in terms of personal finance. We're shifting the gears here and talking about business finance and looking at things in that context. And in a personal finance context, I entirely agree with him. You should not be using debt to finance your lifestyle and buy consumer goods and stuff. But we're looking at things from a business finance perspective uh, where there's opportunity for increased cash flow and increased appreciation of asset value. So when you look at some of the biggest business people out there, and I don't care who you pick, you could pick Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, uh, whoever the richest person in the world is today, I think Elon Musk. Is it Elon Musk today or is it um, the, the Bezos, Amazon guy? I don't know, it's one of them. But any of them, any of those people on the Forbes list, even though they're incredibly freaking rich, they all have debt. And they're not doing that because debt is bad. They're using it to their advantage. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about that today. That said, I will say that I'm actually pretty conservative, um, you know, in my use of debt. And I'm not advocating anybody be incredibly aggressive with it. So, you know, keep that in mind. Just keep an open mind here. Uh, Understand that what I'm sharing with you here is essentially that debt can be a useful tool when it's used appropriately here. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Now, something else I want to cover before I really jump into things here is home service businesses are not cash flow intensive. Let me say that again. Home service businesses are not cash flow intensive. It is possible to start a home service business with nearly zero dollars and grow it to over $10 million a year in revenue uh, or higher and pay for it entirely from the funds that it produces and pay for it from the profits. I've done it. I know it can be done. I've personally done it. So keep that in mind. A lot of people think home service businesses have high overhead. We hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. Well, my business has high overhead. And I'll say, hey, you have no idea what it's like. Try getting into a totally separate business uh, where you've got to buy property, plant, and equipment um, in large fixtures, right? If you, want, if you were to get into the restaurant business, this is going to go off on a little tangent here. I'm probably going to go off on a little, a million of these little tangents. If you were to get into the restaurant business, right, and you want to be a premium service provider in the restaurant business and sell um, or operate a five-star restaurant, you've got to invest probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in cooking equipment. You've got to get a premium location. Uh, and that's going to cost you, I mean, with build out and everything and deposit or purchase of the facility, whatever, you're looking at a million dollars and you really couldn't get started into a high end restaurant with less than a million dollars for sure. Probably going to need a few more million dollars than that to get into it. with home service businesses. You can have a premium brand image by simply getting new vehicles, wrapping them uh, and getting a website up online and then operating out of your house right? So home service business are not cash flow intensive. And then when you look at things uh, narrowed down into what most of my listeners are here and how I operate, which is on the residential side of things where you collect a deposit, which is usually going to be 20 to 50%. And then you get paid pretty much on completion. Yeah. Some customers might drag it out a week or two or a month or something like that. You might have somebody that stiffs you, et cetera. But by and large, you're turning that cash over and collecting it pretty quickly that's, you know, kind of on the opposite to where you might be a commercial contractor uh, that's not going to be as cash flow turnover high in that case. Um, And they're going to be getting paid on 30, 60, 90 day terms, right? So, you know, as a residential home service business, just to kind of reiterate this, you are not in a very cash flow intensive 
business. So that means you really don't need a lot of need debt or need a lot of debt, right? Now, when we get into the nitty gritty of debt, think of debt as leverage. And I like to use this term instead of debt because debt has such a negative connotation with it, but think of it as leverage. So in very, very simple terms, if you are profiting $1 a day and you 10X that, you are now getting $10 a day in profit, okay? But on the flip side of things, if you are losing a dollar a day and then you leverage that up with debt and metaphorically 10x it, well, now you're losing $10 a day, okay? And that loss further compounds. So when you think of debt as leverage, you know, I think that really kind of puts more of an accurate picture on it. And you are either levering up your profit or you are levering up your loss, which is not good. And that is where a lot of people get in over their head and they kind of get overwhelmed or they make poor decisions or simply put, they're using leverage poorly. And that's because they're already making a loss and then they try to lever it up or they say, okay, well, if I could just get this and do that, then I would be good. When fundamentally what they did not need is another asset or whatever they were trying to acquire by debt. What they needed to do is really streamline their operation and make it more efficient. Okay. And this happens a lot in smaller operations. Because in smaller operations, the owner is doing a lot of things. Um, a lot of things are not properly accounted for. Maybe pricing is too low, etc. And so while it might feel like the business is making money, it really is not. And then somebody takes on debt and is suddenly, you know, no matter where that debt goes or how it's used, they are scaling up a loss. Okay, are you guys following me on that? So debt is just simply leverage and it's either going to scale up a, it's going to scale up your profit or it's going to scale up your loss. So it's important that before you look into debt or leverage as a tool to actually grow your business, that you are in a position of profit. All right. And for that reason, I'm going to kind of jump ahead here. For that reason, I say that once you get the basic resources that your business needs, don't even consider using leverage or debt until you're at at least a million dollars a year in revenue and you've been in business for at least two years so that you've really got a handle on things. So uh, let's kind of backstep from that. And what I wanted to say is for small operations that need resources, if you were just one guy and a helper, you know, just trying to get your, uh, just trying to kind of get a footing in the market and you need resources, like let's say, uh, I don't know, you need a reliable truck, right? Like, that is legitimately a resource that you need. Yes, to absolutely get your business going, yeah, you might need to finance that if you don't have one already. Um, if you need, I don't know, maybe you need a dump trailer, maybe you need sod cutter, maybe you need a bobcat, etc. Things like that that you need to fundamentally operate the business when you're getting started, go ahead and finance them. I think that is a fairly safe and conservative investment, and they're all things that you're going to need. And if you're buying the right equipment, or you're buying, I guess, any kind of equipment, um, it's going to be an asset. In other words, a Bobcat doesn't really go to $0 in value overnight. Neither does a truck. And I know down here in Southwest Florida, uh, plain white, regular cab, long bed work trucks, they hold their value incredibly well. You, you can't even find one with less than 100,000 miles for less than a couple grand uh, of the cost of a new one. Like a new one might cost 30 grand. One with a hundred thousand miles on it. That's two years old is going to be like 27 grand, right? So they're hard to find and they hold their value incredibly well, the work trucks. So 
you know, get what you need to do the job right and to do the job efficiently, but then focus on doing the job efficiently, making profit, crossing that $1 million a year threshold, which is not hard for, um, you know, one guy and a crew and a salesperson type of operation to cross. It's really pretty easy. And I know some operations that are just one guy and one two-man crew that cross that $1 million a year threshold and, you know, make a pretty good profit. Of course, the owner is putting in a lot of effort and filling multiple roles and filling the hats of many people, but the money is still coming out of it. And again, that money can be used to reinvest and buy the things that they need, right? So when you're below that million dollar threshold at that point, um, you know, just kind of keep things, keep things to the point of where it's subfunded. Wait till your business shows it has staying power, stability, and it's demonstrated efficiency and profitability over a good period of time, at least one year, maybe a little bit longer. Because that, that kind of period there between, you know, zero and a million dollars, that's where a lot of people get caught up in this debt thing of saying, hey, I'm going to buy this. And once I get this, I can do this. And, you know, then we're all going to be good at that point. And what they're not realizing is, hey, we're actually already losing money and now we're taking on debt into a system, into a business that is fundamentally losing money and now we've just scaled up our losses. We're levering up our losses as I explained earlier on in this. So um, you know, if you're just starting out, if you're new, you need the resources to get things done, yeah, maybe go ahead and finance them. But otherwise, below a million dollars, keep subfunding that stuff. Now, as you grow, then you know, things get a little bit more flexible and you've also got a little bit more cash flow to work with and you don't have such a necessarily high reliance or I should say high reliance, but you, you don't have as tight a cash coming into your own pocket to where if you have issues that you're going to have a problem, right? You're, you're building up a higher cash flow and hopefully at this point on the personal finance side of things, you're living below your means. Now, uh, before I kind of keep going on this, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on. And this is a saying that you hear a lot, and that is use other people's money, right? And a lot of people will say that, but that concept only applies when you've got the money you have already doing something else and getting a return. In other words, you're getting a return on that money higher somewhere else than what it's going to cost you to borrow it at. And I'll share an example with you. I know a gentleman that's a friend of mine. He uses that mentality a lot. And, uh, you know, if he's out there listening, um, well, I'm not saying he's doing it wrong, but it's certainly not, I think, the most economical way of doing things. But he keeps a lot of money in cash on hand, several hundred thousand dollars. But then he also goes out and finances quite a bit. But what he's doing is he's keeping the money in cash on hand and it's an ex it's an extraordinary extraordinarily higher uh, amount of cash on hand than he really needs. So he's holding a big pile of cash and then financing things. And while that money's sitting in cash, it's losing out to inflation, and subsequently he's paying money on the debt and the money that he's borrowing, right? And you know he looks at that from the perspective use other people's money, but economically that mentality only works if you are getting a higher return on the money that you have than what you are going to be paying to borrow the money from somewhere else. So, um, you know, in those cases, when you start getting a lot of cash like that, it's a time when you kind of need to start looking at keeping the money in stocks and brokerage holdings. And in that case, um, you know, it's going to be a whole nother topic that I could talk on for hours because I'm really big in the quantitative finance space. Uh, but that's, that's at a point where you need to hire an independent financial advisor 
and kind of come up with a total portfolio solution for yourself. Um, but just keep that in mind. You know, if you're holding a lot of money in cash, you know, it's not doing you any good just to sit in cash when you could use it to pay down debt or to not have any debt. So the, this concept of using other people's money only works when your cash is somewhere else getting a higher return. All right. So once you kind of grow beyond that $1 million hurdle, there's a few places where you can use leverage to kind of really scale things up. And again, you need to have your efficiency dialed and you should have consistent profits, etc. Um, fleet vehicle replacements is one thing that comes to mind. Uh, having a new fleet is something that's incredibly powerful. It makes your guys, uh, the drivers of them, your employees feel a lot better. They like getting into a nice new vehicle as opposed to something that's ratty and worn out and kind of beaten up. Right? And they do tend to take care of new vehicles better. I will say that. they do. Yes, fleet vehicles do get beat up. But um, if you give your guys a new vehicle, uh, you know, make them sign a policy about abiding by all the rules and all that kind of a vehicle operations policy is what we called it. They tend to take care of them pretty well. And then, of course, you have less on maintenance. And then the vehicle looks better you know, to the consumer. It looks more presentable. It's going to do well in the nicer gated communities where people are looking at those little finer details. And... You know, one thing that always comes up is, well, couldn't you pay for the fleet vehicles? Well, yes, you could. But once you have a fleet of vehicles, and if you have a fleet, you know what I'm talking about. It's never like uh, the kind of textbook accounting world where there's a sinking fund and then a reserve account that would be used to pay for replacement of fleet vehicles. Like that just does not happen in the real world. Usually what happens is you're kind of like standing in the parking lot one day looking at all your trucks or vans or whatever you have. And you're like, damn, these things are looking pretty shitty and they're getting kind of high in miles. I think it's time to replace them, right? And if you're going to go replace five of them, by the time they get outfitted and wrapped, you're at, I don't know, 45, 50 grand a vehicle. Uh, let's just say you need $225,000. That might be more than you keep in cash on hand for your actual business. So then going out and financing them to pull them all in, um, you know, is a perfectly sound and fine idea. Um, other ideas for financing, uh, your own facility, right? You can rent or you can buy your home. Well, you can rent or buy your own facility. Uh, so when you're kind of looking at things in that context, well, now you're going to avoid lease payments and now the money's coming back into your own I shouldn't say your pocket, it's not going to make it there, at least not initially, but it's staying within your net worth by building equity in a business. Now, I've never actually bought my facility. It's something I've thought about, but the owners of them never really kind of wanted to sell them at a price I thought was right. Am I right or wrong? Maybe I should have paid a higher price than I thought and bought the business, uh, or not bought the business, but bought the facility. You know, th there's no right or wrong answer, but financing your facility is certainly not bad. I'll tell you in my cases, uh, one building I was looking at that we leased, we were leasing it for about $4,000 a month. So 4,000 times 12, we were paying $48,000 a year. The owner wanted to sell the building for $2.5 million. So when you look at it in terms of that, and we do 48,000 divided by that 2.5 million, uh, that would produce a cap rate. Capitalization rate is a term that's used in the real estate world to um, kind of benchmark the value or the income that a, pro that a property gives you, right? So we're getting, you know, we pay $2.5 million. We're essentially getting $48,000 a year in value. That cap rate is less than 2%. That is incredibly low. Uh, but likewise, you know, I'm not saying it would have been a bad investment to buy the building because there was nothing to compare it to. If the owner ever wanted to kick us out or when our lease was up, did not want to renew, 
you know, then we'd be in a real pickle because now where are we going to move the business? You know, we're a home service business. We can operate fundamentally anywhere, but we had a really good location that was very centrally located, uh, had easy access to the highways. So we could kind of get anywhere within our pretty big service area pretty quick and easily. So keep that term in mind, the cap rate. That's a that's always an interesting way of looking at real estate. And whether that's your own facility, your rental properties that you want to buy, I'm not a big uh, rental property advocate, but they do work well for some people and some people like that investment. Look at it in terms of how much income is it going to give me or value in the case of using it for your business. After all expenses, divide that by the total real estate price, or the total cost of the asset. Uh, and, you know, look at that number and then see where does that compare? You know, in my area in Southwest Florida, in the industrial area that we wanted to be in, you know, that was 2% cap rate was about the standard rate for anything comparable. Now, if you were to be in a totally different area, I've heard of people getting, you know, 20, 25% rates on deals. And uh, to be quite frank, if I, if I found those numbers and I seen something that was, let's just say over a 10% rate, I would probably acquire it real quick. I would, I would really want to make that deal happen and I would not back down until I got it or until it closed. But at 2%, that just wasn't for me. So anyways, acquiring your own facility, not a bad idea for, you know, using leverage for that. Or beyond that, acquiring other businesses. So SBA 7A um, is the program that funds or doesn't fund, but they guarantee acquisition loans. So you'd, you'd contact an SBA lending bank, um, an independent bank, and then they're going to have that loan guaranteed by the SBA 7A program to acquire other businesses. Now, this can bring in other streams of cash flow and it can bring in employees very quickly, right? You can literally, you know, by the time you sign the papers, you've now got 10 more employees and $2 million in revenue. And then you also get that customer base. So at that point, you're using leverage to acquire a cash flow stream. That's a totally sound idea. And I know a lot of people, particularly in the HVAC and plumbing spaces right now are using leverage to do that. And I think that's a very sound, you know, very sound way of using debt. It's not, it's not bad in any stretch of the imagination. So keep all that stuff in mind um, as you're considering, hey, do I pay cash or do I pay debt? And my kind of broad, non-specific guidance would say be, you know, if you're below a million dollars in revenue, you know, you've only been in business a couple of years, wait till you cross that million dollar year in revenue and you've had nice profitability for a few years, then you know that you've got a solid, efficient and profitable and, you know, a business that will really kind of stand the test of time there. Then you can start looking for ways and looking at debt as a tool of leverage to kind of help you scale up and grow faster.